thing to be organized. I'll give you a bit of trivia. If you're going to go down to see the White House of the Confederacy, they didn't know. Jeff Davis was given an honorary doctorate by Bowdoin College, <laughs> the same college where Chamberlain and they didn't take it back. He was an engineer. He was surveying for the baseline for the topographic survey. And he has a... a they didn't know that. You can tell them. Hello, and I want to tell you how honored I am to have been invited to make a presentation to you. I also want to thank uh, Jonathan Sebastian, who has taken such good care of us. Uh, he chauffeured us to uh, Milwaukee last night, where I gave the presentation that I'm going to give to you tonight. That was a trial run. This is going to be the real deal. <laughs> Are you all ready, my dear? Okay. Um, the, the first slide that we have up is uh, the, the sequence of how I came to write the book Command Conflicts that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, my first book was called Anne and Joshua, a biography of Joshua Chamberlain. Um, and one thing led to another. Uh, the books are available, by the way, should anybody be interested tonight. Uh, we came to uh, an interest in the Civil War, and I suspect some of you did uh, follow the same pathway. Uh, when we were kiddos in grammar school, it was the 100th anniversary of the Civil War, and uh, both of us got very excited uh, about the, uh, the events that took place. We have a picture of, of um, a great gun here. Because myself, I was in, uh, lived in Portland, Maine, and uh, in celebration of, of uh, the hundredth anniversary, they touched off one of the great coastal guns, and I was so excited, and I was standing right next to it, and nobody warned me. I don't. I'm not sure they realized themselves when they touched it off how loud it was going to be. I know my ears rang for two days. I didn't hear a thing. But it was glorious. So uh, we both went on to do other things. Um, but things came along that reawakened our interest in the Civil War. Um, we had two teenage sons who decided they wanted to be Civil War reenactors, uh, with no particular urging from us. So we're figuring there's some kind of Civil War gene out there that's <laughs> passed along. So one of them, our younger son Alex, was lucky enough to be uh, uh, part of the um, background artists, as they call them, uh, in the movie Gettysburg. Um, and a wonderful experience for him. He was only 14, uh, so Ned and I both um, uh, went down with him and pretended we were kind of keeping an eye on him. Um, and we were lucky enough to be present for a lot of the filming of the movie, which was really, uh, I'm, I, I, we're delighted that we had that experience. But it, it, it pushed all our buttons uh, again. And uh, when we came back um, from the filming, we offered our volunteer hours to the Chamberlain Museum in Brunswick, Maine. 
um, who were working very hard to try and preserve the home of Joshua Chamberlain. So we became guides there. We also uh, received access to the wonderful collection of archival material that the Historical Society there has gathered together. Chamberlain material is scattered all over the country and they've done a wonderful job of, of becoming a, a prime repository for Chamberlain material. Uh, I'd urge you to, to try and visit Brunswick if you ever have the opportunity. Um, we can move on to the next slide. Huh? So, at the time I wrote, after considering a great deal, uh, mostly correspondence, uh, first-person correspondence, um, I began to feel somewhat uneasy with the early Chamberlain biographies. Um, the word hagiography comes to mind. Uh, there was presented a Chamberlain who was a perfect individual, who uh, seemingly won the Civil War all by himself. <laughs> and I became more and more uh, uncomfortable with that, uh, to the point where I decided after uh, about eight years of uh, research that I wanted to share my findings and perhaps find a, a more human and realistic um, Chamberlain. Um, I did a whole life biography on him and his wife, uh, Fanny, who'd been dealt with rather harshly uh, in the early biographies, and found out he was still a remarkable person, but a much more human one who had strengths and weaknesses, as do we all. <clears throat> I think we can move to the next So the result was Fanny and Joshua. Um, this has just been re-released in a second edition. Um, so we're glad that it is still available. Um, I am proud of, of James McPherson's uh, opinion on what the book accomplished. It, 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 it uh, uh, made me feel that I, I had indeed perhaps um, gotten a, a window on the real Chamberlain. We can move again. Um, I spent a great deal of time uh, looking at uh, Chamberlain's military service, much of which is in the biography. Um, and I was aware of the fact that he had had a lot of correspondence with other veterans. He had actually, Chamberlain had actually hoped to write a history of the Fifth Corps, Army of the Potomac and got involved in so many other things. He was governor of Maine, he became president of Open College, and he never quite got around to writing the history. But he continued to correspond with a lot of veterans, including a lot of Confederate ones. And I knew that he had been uh, writing letters back and forth with General Mumford. And I looked at Duke University to see if they, if they had the monthly papers. Was there Chamberlain correspondence there as well? No, sadly, there wasn't. But the Special Collections Librarian there uh, casually mentioned to me that he had a Chamberlain manuscript. Uh, and to my vast surprise, it was one that had rather fallen through the cracks. Matter of fact, Duke does not know how they acquired it. Uh, they just have it. 
uh, and it was a rough draft of Chamberlain's personal account uh, that allocated. <coughs> Uh, we ended up, it had, had never been published, so we ended up uh, doing the book Chamberlain in Petersburg, with the backbone of which is Chamberlain's account. We augmented it by having a look at the Fifth Corps' role in the Overland campaign. Um, Ned did a lot of work on the maps. You're probably aware of the fact that the maps that the Army of the Potomac had were terrible, <clears throat> almost useless. And it was difficult as well. I got a It was difficult as well for um, a map maker, a map maker today, to try and sort through the confusion of uh, the terrible federal maps. Uh, so Ned did that work, um, and we heavily annotated Chamberlain's account, um, filling in, dotting the eyes, you might say, and. Uh, there has been a challenge to that book, actually. Is it true that Dennis Rosbach is coming in this spring, next spring? Is he one of your, going to be one of yes. your guests? Yes, yes, he is. Because Dennis has challenged my book and Chamberlain's account. Um, and I just threw out a couple of thoughts here, questions you might want to ask him. My very first question, honestly, when Dennis proposed that Chamberlain did not attack where he said he did uh, at Rice Salient at, in Battle of Petersburg on June 18th, that he actually attacked about a mile and a half to the federal right, where, to my knowledge, the Ninth Corps fought on June 18th. So my very first question to Dennis would be, where do you think the Ninth Corps was? Uh, and I had some other possibilities here. Another major point is that um, the fortifications, the Dindic Line as it was called, that was built at Petersburg, took a year to construct and it was formidable. It's the reason why when Baldy Smith took a look at it, he hesitated, and Quincy Gilmore didn't attack at all, it was formidable. <clears throat> Chamberlain and his first brigade attacked at Rossalian. Uh, a mile and a half to the right, the future side of the crater, is a line that the rebels fell back to at one o'clock in the morning on June 18th. And whatever they were able to dig in, and they were short of shovels, uh, whatever they were able to pile up is what was faced on that front. So how anyone could mistake a thrown together bit of earthwork for the formidable fortifications for Rassilili. It's just another question that I think hasn't been answered. Uh, we'll move on. So after considering the Fifth Corps in the Arbor campaign, I once again had that very familiar feeling of a lot of unanswered questions and things that didn't seem to make sense. Um, and it's the reason why uh, I worked, I did research and wrote the book that we're, we're looking at tonight. Um, this is not a history of the Overland Campaign. It is very much looking at the Overland Campaign from the point of the role that the Fifth Corps played. 
uh, and it was a very difficult one, as, as we will see. Um, it, we're going, I'm going to, to focus mostly on the very first battle that the Fifth Corps was in, uh, in that Overland Campaign, the Wilderness. But I will assure you that the book considers the role that they played in many other battles. Uh, and looking at it, uh, in a number of cases, the Fifth Corps was the only corps uh, that managed to actually engage the enemy. Uh, where the other corps in the Army of the Potomac uh, had been stymied and blocked by the Army of Northern Virginia. So I became increasingly puzzled as to why uh, the Fifth Corps endured a great deal of criticism uh, as far as the Overland, was, uh, Overland campaign is concerned. So uh, in, in looking at, as I said, I became increasingly uneasy uh, with the way uh, the Fifth Corps had been portrayed uh, as far as the Overland campaign. And to my great relief, I found there were some other historians that were asking similar or these same questions that I was, which was a bit of a relief. And they were wonderful historians. Uh, I heartily recommend um, Edward Steers, The Wilderness Campaign. It may be a book that you're already well familiar with, but I found it a marvelous resource. Very detailed, uh, unbiased. Um, so refreshing. Um, and also, um, I found William Matter's book on Spotsylvania, If It Takes All Summer, very refreshing and a very similar uh, approach um, to that battle. I was lucky enough to get to know Bill Matter and um, was pleased that he too was a great fan of Edward Steer and in fact wrote his book uh, on Spotsylvania with the hope that he would be continuing Edward Steer's fine work moving from the Battle of the Wilderness to the Battle at Spotsylvania. I find myself very cautious when I'm looking at accounts, and there are many uh, as far as the Overland uh, campaign is concerned. When the resources that are being looked at, the sources that are being looked at, are somewhat limited. And I, I find so many that are heavily reliant uh, on grant accounts, um, and to some extent don't explore other resources. Um, a little note up here about red flags, which is, is something that I certainly have considered uh, and tried to apply in, in all the, the research and, and writing that I have done, uh, to be wary um, when accounts change over time, uh, where one thing is said perhaps at the time of a battle, uh, and later it, it's quite a different story. Um, also, people who uh, seem very protective of uh, their reputations uh, or have access to grind. I I'm particularly, uh, it, it seems to, I think the trend is, is over, but 
but I became quite alarmed in the last year or so. It seemed to me that a lot of books were coming out. No footnotes, no endnotes, no bibliography. And I, I, I don't like that. <laughs> I spend most of my time in the back of the book or at the bottom of the page. So I, I, don't, I don't approve of writing, hist writing history like that. Um, I know I, I challenged one publisher asking, you know, why, why are you doing this? And they said, oh, all our authors are experts. We don't have to do that. It's not, not acceptable. Not good enough. No, 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 no. Okay, so uh, let's take it. So I felt very obliged to take a closer look at Grimm. Um, if I'm going to look at the Overland campaign, I, I felt like I really wanted to know more about Grant. And I, I was pretty clean slate as far as Grant is concerned. Um, if I had any preconceived notions at all, uh, it would be, I think he's a pretty good guy. You know, he might not have been an absolute genius, but he did the job, he meant well. Uh, if I was going to be suspicious that he had any weakness, it was choosing his friends unwisely. I, I thought perhaps that might be true. But I gave him the same treatment that I did Chamberlain. There's two extremes, isn't there? You know, you have the one on the left, the drunk who failed at everything. I, I don't know how you feel about it, but personally, I've never become alarmed by the accusations that Grant was an alcoholic. Uh, it struck me that so many of the commanders in both armies drank like fish. Um, so I, it, it never really, uh, you know, I never really found it that alarming. Uh, but of course, then we go to the opposite, the other extreme, uh, this man was a genius and won the war. So I went where the where the research took me. Oh, this is my favorite part. <laughs> this is our first time in the Midwest. We've given a lot of presentations in the Northeast and down in the uh, Southern States, in, in Georgia and the Carolinas and all that. But I'm very excited about being here in the Midwest, and I'm very excited about your impressions. I suspect that you have spent a lot more time looking at the war in the West than I have. Because of my interest in Chamberlain, because of the Fifth Corps, because I did most of my work in the Army of the Potomac, I had a lot of work to do when I decided I wanted to look at Grimm. So, I, I, will you give me a show of hands, if you don't mind, when we look at, at a, a number of, of um, Grimm's battles, victories. Um, Belmont. Now, one of the reasons I, I was interested in Belmont, that well, was his first, first big do, right? Um, after, <laughs> oh, there's always one in the audience. <laughs> Doesn't turn their phone off, don't answer it. <laughs> yeah, uh, after, after Grant was president, He's away on his around-the-world tour. The, France gave him a beautiful presentation sort, and they requested a list of battles, uh, his victories, 
to engrave on his sword. And Belmont was the, was the first victory on the list. So I looked at, at, at Belmont and I thought, wow, you know, he had kind of a narrow scrape there. Uh, but do you look at it at that? Was he surprised at Belmont? Do you, were there people who feel he was surprised? There's a few. <laughs> Did he have a narrow scrape there? Mm, I bet. There's a few. Yeah. <laughs> okay, because I'll tell you what I'm looking for. I was looking for um, behaviors, uh, command styles. I was looking to see how he reacted when things didn't go the way he had planned. Or, you know, if he was uh, quick to put a positive spin on the things that happened to him. So I'm interested in your perceptions on this. For Donaldson, was he surprised at Poor Donaldson? There's a few. Well, you know, I mean, what I was looking at was if, if with that break, the Confederate breakup, okay, if they hadn't gotten cold feet, if they had kept going, um, you know, how would things have ended up? Would they? I don't know. But I thought it was a very interesting encounter. It left me with questions. Shiloh. Surprised? Oh, yeah. Okay. And it also, it, it puzzled me, it, it, it struck me that Sherman, praise was heaped upon Sherman after Shiloh. And that puzzled me. Because I don't think it was his finest hour. So, uh, again, I was looking for character behavior. I've already mentioned, I think, that I was going to go where the evidence, hopefully, go where the evidence leads. So, um, where that okay. Are you moving on? I am moving on. I'm on slide 15. So, here are some of the things I ended up asking myself. There's one, one very famous grant anecdote. The one about how uh, when he first was facing the enemy, he worried about what they were going to do. And his next thought was they were also worried about what he was going to do. And from then on, he wasn't going to worry about what the enemy was up to and what they were going to do next. I, I paraphrase that very badly. But that's the gist of it, yes? I couldn't help but think, I wish that Grant had worried more about what the enemy was going to do. I'm not sure that being unconcerned with what they might do next is necessarily the best policy. So I was looking at what seemed to me to be some habits, you might say. Um, I would, and again, you know, this is all eventually going to get applied to his conduct at the early Yes? So when the enemy didn't do what he was expecting them to do, um, I did question whether uh, how much of the ability he had to adapt, to change the plan, to react. 
And I, I fear that many times his reaction was to pitch in and fast. I wonder if sometimes he exaggerated his successes or hit failures. I did ask myself that. And I ended up feeling pretty confident that uh, he, at times, removed those who were in his own way to uh, advancement. And as far as those he wanted to promote, um, his friends, uh, people were pushed out of the way. And maybe uh, some of those people, it was the right thing to do anyway. Um, but maybe they weren't. I'm thinking of somebody like George Thomas. Hmm. Uh, can we go on to the next slide, Pat? What about Sheriff? What about who? Sheriff. Oh. <laughs> oh, this, this, should, this blew me away. Okay, so I, I, I do, I, I have come to worry about the great confidence Grant had in some people, and, and, and in this case, Phil Sheridan. Again, we're talking about things Grant said well after the war, after his presidency, he's on his world tour. Grant literally said that Phil Sheridan was, was the greatest commander ever. We're not talking about American commanders, we're not talking about Civil War commanders. Grant stated that Phil Sheridan was the greatest military commander in the history of the world. I have a problem with that. And I know the guy in the back table does too. We were talking, we were talking earlier. It's always a relief to me to know I'm not the only one who feels like that. So um, we're on slide 17. I'm on 16. Oh, maybe I skipped something. I got so excited about Phil Sheridan. Oh, yeah, I did. I skipped something. Okay, it's very this is very difficult, okay? We're looking at, at the war in the, in the East and the war in the West. How on earth are you going to compare these? I, I know I have a problem with it. The Vicksburg campaign, months, three-day battle in Gettysburg. I know, I realize, I appreciate the incredible impact and importance of opening up the Mississippi. What an accomplishment. And what did Gettysburg accomplish? Not as much, but I think it was something important. So I have a really hard time trying to, you know, balance this, what was more important, what was a turning point. How they both were in their own way. So that, since we've opened that little can of worms, we'll look at the whole east-west. I, I, I am troubled when people uh, argue the war was won in the west, the war was won in the east. 
I, I just don't see it that way. I, I think it was perhaps a combination of both. I did find James McPherson's statistics interesting, and I also embrace uh, Joshua Chamberlain's quote that heaven knows there was a lot of times when the Army of the Potomac didn't or wouldn't move, but as he pointed out, they did a lot of dying. Yeah? Uh, can we go to slide 18? Thanks. So, I hear, again, there's, there's sort of a, um, a grand mystique, I think would be a good word for it. I have been told um, many times, I think, since in reading since those long ago days of my uh, childhood, that Grant never, never cared for or bothered to get any kind of political um, clout. He, he rose completely on merit. Um, but in taking a good hard look, uh, at who helped him along, whether he asked for it or not, uh, he did get some help. Um, I think you're all familiar with Washburn, who apparently had uh, influence, uh, had Lincoln's ear, and a great supporter of Grant. Henry Halleck. When you had a friend like Henry Halleck, you didn't need any enemies. <laughs> and, and, and I think he most definitely was Grant's enemy at first. Um, when Halleck went to Washington, it, it, he was such he was such a he wanted to have his finger in everything, but he didn't want to take responsibility for anything. Okay? But I think eventually he became uh, Grant's pal, his supporter. Um, and like I say, with friends like Halleck, you don't need anybody working against you. Then there was this guy. We're on 19, right? How many of you are familiar with Charles Dana? Okay. What, what sort of things do you do you think of when you think of Charles Dana? Spy, spy, provocateur. Spy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Never yeah, and he was, he was. Yeah, I do. Was secretary of war? Yes, yeah, I, I think it, absolutely he was sent out as a spy to have a, a good look at Grant and see what sort of a guy he was. Um, but once Dana got out there. Um, he liked very much what he saw as far as Grant was concerned. And his reports that were going back to Washington, and going back to Stanton, going back to Lincoln, was that Grant was okay. Uh, but there were a lot of other guys he didn't like, and he sent scathing uh, reports back on a number of people, like McLennan, like Buell, like Rosecrans, and Thomas. It intrigued me when I saw correspondence from Dana as early as 1862, where he was talking about how Grant was going to make a good potential presidential candidate. 1862. And one, you wonder 
uh, how much it colored uh, his reports, uh, his wanting to see uh, Grant succeed um, in command and advancement. Uh, can we go on to 20? So, was Washburn and Dana's and Halleck's um, support enough to really accomplish Grant's advancement? I think it, I think it did. It played a role, no question. It did was uh, uh, Grant's Western roots appealing to Lincoln? It wouldn't surprise me a bit. And when I think about what Lincoln endured as far as their early commanders of the Army of the Potomac. Um, I would think Grant looked very good to him. It took me a while to realize what was at stake. <laughs> You'd like to think the most important thing that was at stake, uh, at stake was the, the, the survival of the United States. But there was an awful lot of other complicating variables. And a lot of um, politicking going on both within the Army and, and um, in the vicinity of Washington. Can we want to try it? Read my mind. So we're moving into the Overland campaign now. We're looking at the men who came east uh, with Grant when he became Lieutenant General. Uh, Phil Sheridan was given the Army of the Potomac's cavalry. Uh, he really had almost no cavalry experience uh, in the West. And there were some decent cavalry commanders in the Army of the Potomac, they got pushed aside. <coughs> I'll jump down to James Harrison Wilson, who's one of the guys um, that uh, was handed a division of the Army of the Potomac's cavalry. Uh, no cavalry experience, okay? His at closest he got to a horse was buying them in Washington for the Federal Army, yet he was going to command the cavalry division. Uh, Baldy Smith, I'm guessing a lot of you know that he had kind of a checkered past. He had been with the Army of the Potomac, had behaved so badly uh, when he was under Burnside. It's oh, a whole other story. He got, Baldy Smith ended up going west and, and did quite well out there. Uh, and ended up being brought back east uh, to supposedly advise and keep an eye on Butler and the Army of the James during the Overland Campaign. Adam Badeau is such a strange little man. At the beginning of the Overland Campaign, he came to Grant as a military secretary. You're probably familiar with him as one of Grant's biographers and the man who helped Grant complete his memoirs at the end of his life. Uh, Adam Badeau's background was a theater critic uh, for the New York newspapers. 
and I'm talking military guy here. Um, he apparently was a small, very round-shouldered, little red-haired guy, and Grant described him as looking like a bet happening. And uh, he's going to play an interesting role in, in Grant's life. He was very best friend uh, with James Wilson, who actually got him assigned as military secretary. It's a hard call here. <coughs> I don't know my audience, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, James Wilson, Harry, as his friends called him, and Adam Badeau were very close and supported each other's advancements and fortunes. I'm not the only person who's noticed not, this. Not, we, we know what I mean. Yeah, which matters not at all, except for the fact of how strong their alliance was and how they you know, advanced one another's careers. Um, okay, on to the next slide. Now we come on to another complex uh, new relationship. I can't imagine a more awkward situation than the one that George Meade ended up in. Um, we're going to have a quick look at, at why George Meade was under such pressure uh, and the spot he was in at the beginning of the Overland campaign. But it, it, Meade was just amazed that he was able to retain command, allowed to retain command of the Army of the Potomac. And yes, he's going to have. Grant looking over his shoulder and calling the shots. Uh, but considering the kind of uh, pressure that Meade was under, uh, it's remarkable. He felt it was remarkable that he retained command. Now, he is going, Meade is going to bend over backwards to do what Grant wanted, to um, even uh, foresee uh, and try and uh, please Grant uh, as, as far as um, what orders were going to be given. It is interesting to consider Meade's private correspondence, in other words, his letters to his wife, who, in which he re reveals that there were many times when he did not agree with what Grant was doing. He thought he was making mistakes, but he would never Never vocalized that to, to Ulysses Graham. We'll move on to George Gordon Mead. What happened? What happened after Gettysburg? And we all know, we've all heard uh, how disappointed Lincoln was uh, that Meade didn't finish off the Army of Northern Virginia. I'll suggest that it was not perhaps an easy thing to finish up the Army of Northern Virginia uh, after the three-day battle at Gettysburg. But nonetheless, the disappointment apparently was extreme. But the thing that probably made things most difficult for me is that he had many, many enemies. Um, Sickles would be probably number one. Even though he was minus a leg, he, how can I say, he hot-footed <laughs> back to Washington, uh, yelling about how uh, Meade totally screwed it up. 
Um, and he did have one concealed. But there were many others. There were many others who felt that they would make much better commanders of the Army of the Potomac than George Meade would ever be. There was the uh, Committee on the Conduct of the War uh, that was very hostile towards <coughs> me and uh, a number of times called him in to testify, to justify himself. There were all the things you've heard about how Meade wanted to not stay in front of Gettysburg or but wanted to run away and all that stuff, most of which was unsubstantiated. But it left George Gordon Meade uh, feeling that he had very, very little support. There's another relationship, we're on slide 24. Um, and that's the relationship uh, between Meade and General Governor Warren. And, and I remind you, if I haven't, if I remember to tell you, that my book is not a history of the Overland Campaign. It is following the Fifth Corps through the Overland Campaign. We're certainly looking at uh, not just at the Fifth Corps movements and all that sort of thing, but we're very much looking at it from their vantage point. Now, uh, Warren, at the time of Gettysburg, was Meade's right-hand man, uh, the man he trusted most. You've probably heard that Warren is credited with discovering that the rebels were trying to turn uh, the Army of the Potomac's left flank uh, on that hill that was unprotected <coughs> by Hancock. That was Warren. When Hancock uh, was so badly wounded at Gettysburg, uh, the Second Corps went to Governor Warren. Uh, he was a trusted man. Things did not go well for the Army of the Potomac after Gettysburg. Um, Meade was urged to go after Lee, which again was not a particularly easy thing to do. In one of the uh, advances that Meade made in an attempt to get at the Army of Northern Virginia, he realized, and we're talking about resuscitation here, that Lee had the advantage on him, and he withdrew. It was terribly embarrassing, but he withdrew. And he left Warren in the Second Corps to uh, protect him during that withdrawal. And uh, Warren made a very good job of it. As a matter of fact, I've heard one historian say that that uh, Warren laid a trap uh, for the pursuing rebels uh, that was the neatest, neatest maneuver of the war. Um, the impetuous A.P. Hill came after the um, receding remnants of the Army of the Potomac and Warren was waiting for, for him. Uh, and, and Hill sustained heavy losses. So it was an event where we came out of things looking badly, and Warren came out of things looking very well. The next encounter that uh, Meade and Lee are going to have is at Mine Run, which ended up very badly. It started out well. 
It was a pretty good plan as, uh, on Meade's part. Uh, there was a General French who managed to get stuck, uh, blocked, way behind schedule. And by the time Meade was able to get his entire army up, Lee had dug in. Lee was in front of him, Lee was dug in. Warren suggested that he might, might be able to get around Lee's flank, and an attack was planned that night, uh, early, early, early morning, the, the morning of the attack, Warren himself went forward, saw that he had been, Lee had anticipated what they were going to do. They were dug in, and he called off the attack. He not only called off the attack, feeling it was suicidal, he called it off before informing George Gordon Meade that he was calling it off. Uh, Meade eventually agreed that Warren did the right thing, uh, that it would have been futile, it would have been useless, but I don't think George Gordon Meade ever forgave him. It not only was another uh, example of Meade not being able to get it late, uh, but it also uh, was an example of one of his subordinates taking too much uh, on himself. Um, and I think it damaged their relationship. So, so it must have in a way been difficult for Horn. Uh, to go from being a trusted uh, right-hand man of Church Burden Meade to being somebody who Meade um, didn't want to hear from. He didn't want any argument from him. He didn't want any advice from him. Um, so as we enter uh, the Overland Campaign, it is interesting to consider the kind of relationships that were going on within the Army of the Potomac. Um, and I, I made some observations here. I, I think that the Second Corps, who, uh, you know, was really highly thought of by everybody, <coughs> by me, by historians. Um, but it's also uh, a sad thing to think of the fact that uh, there wasn't really much left of the Second Corps uh, by the time they reached Petersburg. And what was left of them was not willing to do, to make those frontal attacks that they had made over and over again during the Overland campaign. Uh, we have Sedgwick, poor Sedgwick, they're going to lose him in the Overland campaign in the second battle at Spotsylvania. Uh, the Sixth Corps uh, was, was considered respectable, but slow. Uh, and as soon as, as Cedric is lost, Horatio Wright uh, takes over. Yeah, it's pretty lackluster um, record. Burnside. <laughs> Burnside's Night Corps. Now, at the beginning of the Overland Campaign, you probably remember that the Night Corps was a separate entity, a separate command. Uh, Grant figured it, it just wasn't proper for Amir Burnside, who had been uh, commander of the Army of the Potomac, to be serving under someone else, 
Um, so in the first weeks of the campaign, the Ninth Corps, and it was a disaster uh, as far as uh, command structure and giving orders and that sort of thing. And Burnside was operating independently. They changed that. It was just unworkable. So we're going to have a look at the wilderness campaign as an example of how things went um, and the difficulties. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you say one? Oh, let me have a look. He keeps me straight. Yes. Oh, I just I just wanted to point out some of the sources that I was looking at that maybe uh, somebody who is doing the history of the Overland campaign wouldn't particularly be consulting. Uh, no surprise that I, can, I, I looked at um, Joshua Chamberlain. Um, during, he actually didn't get back to the Army. He was out with uh, what they call typhomalaria. He was very sick in the fall and early uh, 1864. He didn't get back to the Army of the Potomac until about Delania. But once he was back, he was very much involved, uh, mostly on, uh, in, with brigade command. So, and he was he was a, a, a astute observer, you might say. There's A. A. Humphreys, who you might say was Meade's right hand man. He was also the one who was writing the orders. He's credited to being sort of the the um, architect of of those early days of um, the Overland campaign um, and was very respected uh, by most of the commanders as somebody who was level-headed and fair. The last guy up there is Washington Rubley. He was Warren's right-hand man. And if you've heard that name before, it's because after the war, Washington Roebling is going to be the chief engineer on the Brooklyn Bridge. This guy was a topographical engineer. He acted as a scout. He acted as a spy. He carried messages back and forth between Meade and Warren. And he was very outspoken uh, and a very interesting guy. Okay. So, James Harrison Wilson. Remember I told you, he's the guy who was given the first division of uh, Army of the Potomac's cavalry, even though he had no cavalry experience. So, first day of the campaign, a telegraph comes back to Warren that the, uh, Wilson was supposed to be the first guy over the Rapidan, and uh, it, Will, uh, Warren was informed that Wilson had the pontoon bridge laid and most of the cavalry was over. Warren arrives at the Rapidan, no bridge, and most of Wilson's cavalry was still on the wrong shore. So they're not getting off to a good start. And we'll have uh, additional information on, on Wilson's cavalry uh, and his character. Uh, I don't think... Uh, you, uh, scholars of the Civil War, can be unaware of the fact that the wilderness was a terrible place. Uh, it wasn't a place where no one would want to fight a battle. Uh, the second growth, the undergrowth, made it impossible to move more than eight or ten feet off a road and uh, you became invisible. 
and the guy who was supposed to be marching next to you became invisible, and the enemy was invisible. It was a terrible place. So why did they stop there? Uh, Humphreys, that guy uh, that we mentioned, uh, supposedly wrote the marching orders and designed the first few days of what the Army of the Potomac was doing, and said, of course they weren't going to stop in the wilderness. Why would anybody stop in the wilderness? And yet we're told that, no, no, that, that's, that, that was the plan. That's what we were going to do. Roebling was very outspoken about the fact that there was no reason for them to stop where they did. Um, there's been some mentions that, you know, they were dragging an enormous um, train, supply train behind them. And it was sort of like a bad anchor. Um, and that was one of the reasons why they stopped when they didn't really have to. Um, so they stopped, the fifth corps ended up stopping at noon. Plenty of daylight left. And as Roebling pointed out, he having been out and scouted around, there was an area ahead of him that he was convinced was going to be the key to the battlefield. And we have a map on the next page when we go to that hunt. Uh, the fifth course stopped in the vicinity of the Wilderness Tavern, um, with the wilderness itself on their right flank. While the fifth corps, followed by the sixth corps, was crossing at Germanna Ford, uh, Hancock, who got the number wrong? It's supposed to be Hancock's second corps, uh, was crossing miles away down at another fort, Eli's fort, and headed in a different direction, no less. So uh, the Army of the Potomac was split in two rather widely separated parts. Wilson was in charge of making sure that the two, and there really were only two roads through the wilderness, that he had his troopers out on those two roads, making very sure uh, that the Army of the Potomac would be aware of any incursions by the enemy. Uh, for reasons which only Wilson can know, he only put his men out on one of those roads. I found a very interesting a telegraph that Grant sent to Washington as they set out on that first day. And that was that he expected that in the next 48 hours they'd know whether Lee was going to uh, give battle or whether Lee would make a run for, to try and defend Richmond. And that really surprises me, that Grant and me, I don't know, uh, would think that Robert E. Lee would let them come to Richmond without opposition. So one thing I think is important to keep in mind is Grant's plan was that the Army of the Potomac would get from the Rapidan to the Petersburg-Richmond area in about 10 days. Uh, unrealistic? Well, in Grant's mind, he wasn't sure what Lee was going to do, so I guess 
in his mind it was realistic. But in fact, it's going to take a month and a half uh, for Grant to get to Petersburg. Can we go to slide 30? Oh, thank you. So we have the Fifth Corps uh, hunkering down at Wilderness Tavern. Um, Wilson has reported that he has patrols out on both roads, and as I've already told you, we only have them out on one. Later, much later, uh, Wilson was a very young man, uh, and he was one of the uh, Civil War vet commander, veterans, who was going to write his memoirs. Most everybody was dead by the time Wilson wrote his memoirs, which was somewhat of an advantage. But one of the snarkiest things I've ever encountered was in talking about, in writing about the wilderness, Wilson, to explain away his inadequacies of, of um, what happened there, blamed it on his troopers. Uh, and he said that because most of his cavalrymen were volunteers, uh, Wilson was a West Point guy. That was the problem. You could not rely on the volunteers. And I, I found that <clears throat> somewhat offensive. Ah, and as if I hadn't said enough about Wilson, I do want you to know, we, I, I promised you I was going to tell you something about his character. If you, you probably remember his name because he's the guy who, whose cavalry uh, command captured Jefferson Davis. And he's made much of the story about Davison address and all that sort of thing. He freely admitted in later years that that was bunk, that that wasn't true. They named it up. And yet he went right on telling that story for years and years. He's that kind of guy. Um, but he did that a lot. Um, if you got on Wilson's wrong side, or you got in Wilson's way, he had a real way about him of um, making up stories about you, uh, many of which re reached Grant's ears. The whole story that I'm sure many of you have heard about that time when, when uh, Grant came to Thomas's headquarters and Grant was wet and tired and hungry and uh, Wilson uh, described Thompson as, uh, Thomas as, as snubbing Grant, and you know, that's, that's pure Wilson. The whole story about how many of you heard that uh, uh, at the wilderness Grant broke down and was sobbing in his tent? It's another Wilson story. Wilson wasn't there. Uh, Wilson said he heard it from Rollins. So he told that story. I don't know why he was angry at Grant, but apparently he was. Um, and he did, uh, Wilson went after Warren. Okay, now, <laughs> Wilson's not going to do well by Warren here at the Wilderness, and it's going to happen again and again in the Overland campaign. But Wilson particularly had it in for Warren, and he made sure that the stories about what a vile man Governor Warren was reached Grant's ear to the point where Grant didn't think much of Warren. Um, 
Okay. So this is the first, the second day of movement. Uh, and things started to go very badly wrong. Uh, I told you Wilson was only out on one road. He withdrew. He had orders to stay out on both roads. Okay, he was protecting the, the right flank of the Army of the Potomac, uh, or at least the, the 5th and 6th Corps. Uh, Wilson said he never got the orders. He completely withdrew his cavalry, except for one regiment that he left on one road. So when the 5th Corps started their movement, and they were well into their movement on that morning, they started getting uh, enemy fire coming out of the woods on their right flank. Uh, Warren reported this uh, to me, to headquarters, uh, and it was pretty well poo-pooed that it was just some strange delaying action, and they were not to ignore it, uh, and it was coming in mostly on Griffin's 1st Division. But to turn in place, they were strung out, ready for the march, uh, to turn in place, turn to their right, and advance into the woods and take care of whatever was in there. They were to take no time for any kind of reconnaissance, and they were to take no, no time to have any kind of organized deployment. You just turn to your right and march into the woods. And that's what they did. Now, Grant was so convinced that this was nothing to be concerned about, that Hancock, who was miles away and marching off in a different direction, wasn't ordered to stop, uh, let alone rejoin uh, the rest of the Army of the Potomac. So we have Hancock moving out on his own. Uh, this is Charles Griffin. He was a regular. He was a West Point guy. He considered his his major uh, field artillery, uh, but he became quite an effective infantry commander. He was commanding Warren's 1st Division and was an experienced veteran. So uh, Griffin did, under protest, as he was ordered, uh, and advanced into the undergrowth. Uh, and at first they had some slight success, but they were driving, uh, you know, was to the pickets. Uh, it was extraordinarily, it, it was, I was going to say difficult, it was impossible to keep any kind of unit cohesion. Uh, but advanced they did. Uh, and things went okay until they reached the enemy's main line. Uh, hidden, invisible. Matt said. Um, it didn't take Griffin long to realize uh, that both of his flanks were in the air, that the enemy's line uh, extended far beyond his own, both on the left and the right. Uh, and he was facing, his Griffin's division was facing two divisions um, of Ewell's Corps, uh, as we mentioned there. Uh, but then Confederate reinforcements came in, uh, and the place, uh, Sanders Field, um, which you'll see on the next map, uh, became a, a killing field. 
last night, it's been rumored that last night at Milwaukee, I said that Griffin's first division got the shit kicked out of them at Sanders Field. <laughs> that, that, I, that would have been terribly unladylike, and I can't imagine my saying that. <laughs> but you can, you can quote me on that. Uh, it, it was terrible. Um, now, while this was happening to Griffin, um, two other uh, divisions of the Fifth Corps had already moved well, well beyond that. Griffin was was supposed to be the last division out, but he didn't make it out. Um, so Roebling, Washington Roebling, happened to be leading the other two divisions, uh, and they were headed down the Plank Road, uh, and Roebling was right there next to that shooting plateau that place that he really was convinced was going to be the key to this whole area because it was the high ground, because it was the only place where there was a clearing and you could actually see what was going on and what was around you. And Roebling had great inclination to make sure that they held on to that ground because when they had gotten that far next to the tuning farm, he realized that all hell was breaking loose further along the plank road. Uh, and what he was hearing and wanted to find out, uh, remember uh, Wilson when he took off uh, with his division had left one cavalry regiment. Uh, this is John Hammond, he happened to be the commander. He left one, one regiment on that road and that regiment was trying to hold off AP Hills Corps. Uh, that was coming down that road. With Robert E. Lee, no less. Um, and understand that this was going to drive a wedge between the 5th and 6th Corps and the 2nd Corps, who was down the way. And Roebling was desperately trying to bring together a defense uh, to help Hammond try and stop this flood. Uh, down the road, and also to try and hold on to that tree plateau. Uh, at this point, we'll go to the next slide, uh, Roebling receives orders to withdraw altogether and to come back supposedly in support of Griffin. He was anguished. <laughs> uh, he argued with it. <laughs> Uh, but he uh, obeyed it. Uh, he had been unable, Hammond finally gave way, no surprise there. One cavalry regiment against a, a, a Confederate corp. Uh, so they lost that. Uh, they lost the shooting plateau. And by the time uh, the divisions Roebling was leading got back to where Griffin had been, it was too late. Uh, we'll do six. So, it, 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 in looking at, at this day, it feels like you're piling one mistake on top of another. By the way, Wilson, when he rode off with his division, uh, the Confederate cavalry got hold of him, 
Uh, nobody, for the rest of the day, nobody knew where Wilson was. They finally had to send somebody off to find He was cut off completely from the army. They finally sent somebody out to find him and bring him in. Uh, it was not, it, it was a disappointing performance. Eventually, um, Hancock was ordered to stop, and eventually he was ordered to turn and uh, try and rejoin the, uh, the rest of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, we know that when Grant, uh, sorry, when Warren protested this, you know, just turn and attack, don't wait for anything, uh, that it, it, he protested. Uh, and he was threatened with removal of command. I'm sure many of you know what eventually will happen uh, to uh, General Warren at the end of the war. Uh, so it's a bit shocking to think <laughs> that in the first days uh, of his uh, service under General Grant, he was threatened with removal. Um, sadly, uh, the Sixth Corps, who was uh, ordered to come up on the Fifth Corps' right uh, and give them some support, took forever. And again, it was difficult. The conditions of trying to move anybody around the wilderness were, were very difficult. Uh, we've got Charles Griffin again. This guy was, was a tough old regular. And, and it's, it's sad to me to think uh, what he and his men went through um, on that day in the wilderness. Uh, he yelled at me and, and almost got into a lot of trouble. And the following night, he ended up coming into headquarters and actually crying about what had happened to his division. Uh, The same thing is pretty much going to happen to Hancock as to what happened to Warren. Uh, when Hancock approaches uh, the scene of the fighting uh, near where the Fifth Corps was, the same thing's going to happen to him. He's going to be rushed in, no time, don't take any time, you pitch in. Uh, and Hancock, although again, I'm not unlike the Fifth Corps, had some initial success, is eventually going to be treated very roughly and, and not, ultimately not succeed. So we're, we have been given, <coughs> we're given an opportunity to congratulate Grant. Uh, maybe not on his conduct and what happened at the wilderness, but we're, been given to congratulate Grant because he didn't go back across the Rapidan, um, which of course we're led to believe was what that slouch Meade would have done. And there's a lot of ways of looking at what Grant did next. After he crossed the Rapidan at Germanna Ford, the bridge was sent away. They didn't retain uh, control over the crossing. They were committed. They were going. 
so it, it puzzles me in a sense why so much is made of, well, he made the decision he was, he was not going to turn back, he was going to keep going. You, you could say, in a way, uh, he didn't have much choice. Uh, there was no surprise about where they were going. Um, I, as I, I mentioned, we uh, stood on Tuning Farm Plateau, and with a place we talked about that was kind of the key to the battlefield, and watched the federal trains leaving and heading towards. The, there was only you know two possibilities we have here: Fredericksburg or Spotsylvania, and leave out on Spotsylvania, and literally had a road chopped through the woods so they could, he could start moving his army that way. So we'll leave the wilderness. Um, Grant reported to Washington, uh, although he didn't claim a victory, he essentially was saying it was a draw. Uh, there were some who would say that perhaps Lee had an advantage here. And it's interesting because Grant had the you know, overwhelming numbers as far as infantry was concerned. He had a lot more artillery than Lee had. All of that was canceled out by the nature of the fighting in the wilderness. One of the things that bothers me um, about the communications between Grant and Washington during the Overland Campaign was a constant stream of messages to Washington. The rebels are broken. Okay, They're demoralized. They're not going to stand. They won't fight us in the open. You can see this. You know, they're, they're, gonna, they're going to crumble. Uh, and none of that was very true. Uh, one of the things that's kind of sad about it is that word for word, Washington was transmitting that information to Butler, who was waiting for Grant and the Army of the Potomac to show up. The last part of our story is the night when the Army of the Potomac is committed to moving. They're moving, going to move away from the wilderness and they're going to head towards Pennsylvania. And the first corps out, the one who was going to lead that movement, was the fifth corps, uh, General Warren. The federal cavalry had been ordered to keep those roads open to Spotsylvania. Uh, Stuart was, unbeknownst to the federals, certainly, was leading Anderson's corps towards Spotsylvania. They had already begun their move. Uh, Sheridan would later claim that he never received the orders. So when the Fifth Corps, and Gordon Meade and Graham were both with the Fifth Corps, um, arrived at the, the road leading into Spotsylvania, they found all the cavalry asleep, no orders, and they couldn't find Sheridan. Uh, Stuart was blocking the road ahead. Meade woke up the cavalrymen 
and ordered them to clear the road, they weren't able to do it. Uh, and the Fifth Corps had to fight their way out. It was a narrow woods road. Um, the Federal Cavalry left. Um, Stewart's Cavalry stayed and fought with Anderson. So you see kind of a very different <laughs> approach to the cavalry business. Let's go to 42. Yeah. So the result of this terrible night, uh, with its disarray, uh, as far as no coordination between the Federal Cavalry and, and uh, the infantry, uh, was there was a, a mighty confrontation between Meade and Sheridan. And as I said, Sheridan claimed he never got any orders, and Sheridan was furious that Meade had given orders to his cavalrymen without them passing through him. Uh, we are told uh, by various witnesses that there was a lot of cussing and swearing. They were both high-tempered high men. But Meade, uh, after all, was the commander of the army of the um, So uh, it was so bad, and, and Sheridan essentially told me that, you know, Fine, keep giving orders to the cavalry because I'm not doing it. And when Meade went to Grant uh, to uh, describe what he felt was, was uh, insubordinate behavior by Sheridan, uh, Grant was apparently somewhat intrigued by uh, Sheridan's um, suggestion that you know, if he was allowed to uh, command the cavalry the way he wanted to, they could be doing a lot more. Uh, and so instead of being reprimanded, uh, Sheridan instead was given an independent command. Um, I consider it the worst decision, probably the most uh, faithful decision that Grant made during the uh, Overland campaign. Uh, it, Sheridan essentially rode off for all practical purposes with the entire federal cavalry. Now, we've already talked about the fact that the maps that the Federals were holding were worthless. Um, and from here on, the Army of the Potomac is going to be moving blindly. Uh, Lee certainly, he sent off half of his cavalry to respond to uh, uh, Sheridan's incursions. He kept half of his cavalry. Uh, and they were going to continue to do the things they've been doing all along, scouting and screening and fighting. And we also have to remember that there were many men in Lee's army who knew where they were, who were from there, and knew where they were going, and knew where the roads were, uh, unlike the Federals. So I, I consider it a, a, a mistake that had great repercussions. Moving to the next slide. So we're going to leave the Army of the Potomac there uh, at the end of the wilderness. I assure you that I look at the other battles of, of uh, the Overland Campaign and the role of the Fifth Corps uh, and the rest of the Army of the Potomac played in them. They're terrible names. The ones that conjure up um, bad things. Spotsylvania and Cold Harbor. 
And you can see the numbers are, are rather severe. And the thing that's probably most alarming about those numbers is that we know that the Corps commanders, the federal Corps commanders, were ordered to underreport their casualties. So we'll never really know uh, what the real numbers were. The estimates, I mean, the, uh, and Amman's had 45, and so are you. Uh, the estimates are, are horrifying enough without uh, considering that they, they might be worse. So, uh, you know, we, we'll, we, see, we see Grant, and, and one can't help but be moved by his last days. Um, and, and I'll remind you that Bedeau, he did rely on Bedeau to help him write uh, his memoirs. Bedeau had taken a lot of notes, and he assisted. Uh, as an indication of Bedeau's character, after Grant's death and the, the great success of the memoirs, uh, Bedeau tried to claim credit for writing them uh, to part of the profits from the book. I don't believe he got them, but uh, it seems rather sly on his part. So, the, it, again, you, you get left with unanswered questions, uh, things that don't quite add up, things that, you know, orders that were given, uh, who actually, you know, did what, uh, what stories changed, what excuses were made, uh, just all questions that maybe we need to be asking. I, I certainly found myself asking. briefly touched on this. What was at stake? You know, was it really that big a deal that, you know, the ambitions that people saw might be fulfilled? And we can just kind of run down some of the leading uh, players. Um, Elijah Washburn, I think, was one of the people who was most influential as far as Grant's advancement, as far as he did. Um, and Washburn had expected Grant to appoint him Secretary of State, and Grant did, but only for 11 days, uh, because he wanted to appoint somebody else. Uh, after uh, Washburn could say, well, I was Secretary of State for a week and a half, uh, Washburn was sent as Ambassador to France. Depending on whose story you listen to, uh, Washburn never spoke to Grant again, or they remained pals. It depends on who you listen to. Uh, Rollins, we haven't really talked very much about him, but he was essentially uh, uh, Grant's military secretary. Um, Rollins, who was dying of tuberculosis, became secretary of war. Both Sherman and Sheridan, as you can see, uh, commanded the U.S. Army. The Doe <laughs> uh, was a brigadier general by the end of the war. A brevet, but nonetheless. Gosh. Yeah, and held diplomatic posts. Uh, Dana, um, who I'm sure felt had played a very large part uh, in Grant's success. 
had expected to be appointed um, surveyor of the port. No, collector of the port. Very lucrative. Grant didn't give it to him. Now, uh, Dana, after the war, went back to being a newspaper man. And when Grant didn't give him the surveyor, I'm sorry, the collectorship, uh, he turned on him. Uh, his, Dana's papers were full of uh, how stupid and crooked Grant was. Uh, Wilson apparently was not in particular favor because after the war he reverted back uh, to being a lieutenant colonel uh, in the regular army, so nothing very, very exciting. Uh, although by the time the Spanish-American War rolled around, uh, he was appointed um, a major general. He, Wilson, wrote uh, biographies of Grant, of Rollins, of Dana, and eventually wrote his own memoirs, which are a piece of work. So, I will uh, point out to you that I have an author uh, website uh, that has uh, information about all of the books um, and also reviews that I've written, um, particularly about Dennis Rosbeck's book. Um, and I'd like to now ask you if you have any comments or questions uh, that we could discuss. Yes? Let's see if I've got this right. Um, Wilson was supposed to be on two roads. He, he, ordered, he, he uh, sent back messages that he was on two roads. He was only on one road. And then later on denied that he got the orders to be on two roads. And he was supposed to stay there. He was supposed to stay on both roads. He said he never got the orders and he gathered his guys and left, except for one regiment on one road. So he got the orders to be on two roads, but he never got the orders to stay there. Yeah. So wonderful. Yeah, it would be up. Yes. Routinely, when orders were sent out in both armies, they would have a receipt that it didn't deliver to the proper headquarters, okay. and that receipt would be brought back to the issuing order headquarters. It makes it all the more puzzling why so much of that happened in those first days of the campaign. I wish I could answer that question. You know, the, the orders are in the OR, but when someone says, I never got it, I, I wish I knew the answer. Yeah, there should be a paper record that they got them. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Would it be in the UR? Probably not. Because okay. I know that they list, you know, obviously the date, but also the time received, yes? Usually. Well, often, but not invariably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm afraid you may not know. That's an interesting observation. Yeah. Is there anyone else who has something they'd like to add or consider? Yeah?